Mom to Mom podcast. We're three generations of moms who've experienced nearly every season of motherhood. Of course, we don't have all the answers, but you can be sure that we'll always point you to the one who does. We're pouring a cup of coffee and we're chatting motherhood today. Pull up a chair. We're really glad you're here. Today, we're welcoming Jess Ronnie to the podcast. Now, Jess is the author of Sunlight Burning at Midnight. She's the founder of a nonprofit, and she's the mom of eight, including her son, Lucas, who was born with profound disabilities. Jess became a widow and a single mom at 33 after losing her husband to a brain tumor. And she's going to talk to us about that. At that time, she had four children under six, but after several years, she met Ryan Ronnie. He was a widower with three children. They married and had a child together in 2015. Now, at that point, her son, Lucas, was entering puberty. So raising him just became more challenging every day. And she and Ryan began to seek out resources and support for caregivers. But try as they might, they could not find any community for caregivers who were desperate for a break. So Jess founded her own nonprofit called The Lucas Project to help families with special needs. She realized early on her efforts needed to include respite care for the caregivers and advice to help all of us to recognize their needs and practical ways that we can help. Not only do disabled individuals need lifelong care, but their caregivers do as well. So welcome, Jess. We are so glad to have you on today to share about such an important yet rarely talked about topic. First, we want you to tell us about your life during those early years, especially raising a disabled child and walking through your husband's brain cancer and the issues you face being a single mom for a season. I know you must have had a lot of challenges doing all that. Yeah, I did. And I guess, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And in 2004, I went to what I thought was a routine ultrasound appointment. And it was there that I was told that my unborn child had suffered from a stroke in utero and there was no hope. Um, it was recommended that we terminate the pregnancy. I went home to my husband, Jason, at the time, who was on his knees praying for my safety and our unborn child's safety. Um, and we just knew that our faith was not going to allow termination. We were just going to put the baby in the Lord's hands and trust that his will would be done. And on um, August 12, 2004, Lucas was lifted from a gaping hole in my belly. His head was the size of a two-year-old's at birth because it was so full of cerebral spinal fluid. So they literally cut me open from one side to the other to get him out. And he screamed with life and I wept in relief. And that was the day I became a forever parent caregiver. Um, And honestly, I didn't care what came along with him at that point because I was told he was going to die. And here I was like with my live baby and going home with my live baby. And I didn't care what any of that entailed um, because in, in my eyes, I had my miracle. But the next couple of years would be extremely challenging. Uh, Lucas had autism. We did not know that. You know, 18 years ago, it wasn't the, the hot topic that it is today. Nobody was really talking about it. He just never slept ever. And um, because his head was so large, I had to like sit beside him almost all night long because if he were to turn over onto his stomach, he would have suffocated himself to death because he couldn't lift his head back up. Just delayed in every aspect of life. We also had a two-year uh, a son, Caleb, who was two years older than Lucas. And then in 2007, um, we gave birth to a daughter, Mabel, and kind of thought our our family was complete. But it 
it wasn't yet at that point. Um, and so while Lucas is going through all these challenges, I give birth to Mabel. And three months after giving birth to her, my husband, Jason, starts having all these health challenges. He's losing his vision. His, he's becoming disoriented. He's losing all this weight. And he's a personal trainer, a tennis professional. He owns a gym, like the epitome of health. And he would go to specialists and they would just say, you somehow you have type one diabetes. You just have to get your diabetes under control. And he just could not get this figured out. And then one night he passed out and he was rushed to ER and it was discovered that he had a baseball sized tumor in his brain. They removed it and he was sent home. It was only a grade two at that point. He was sent home. We were told we could just watch and wait for a while um, because typically these tumors do come back, but they said, you know, they often don't come back for like 20 years or so. And we thought, okay, God, God has you know, dealt with us. We are good. He's tested our patients. He's tested our faith between Lucas and Jason. And we just had faith that we weren't going to have to deal with that again for a long time. Wow. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jess. And I know that's just like the tip of the iceberg of, of your story, but it definitely gives us a little peek, a little lens into your life and the daily struggles that you have faced in the last few years. And then, you know, the story doesn't end. I know that you did go on to meet someone else and expand your family. But I'd love to hear some more about Lucas specifically. I know that, well, I have no doubt that he's a huge blessing to your family, but also has presented some challenges that many parents don't ever have to face. How has raising him challenged your faith over the years? Well, during the pregnancy, that was probably one of the most challenging times, just having, I constantly vacillated between faith and fear. I mean, as any mother would, like one day being full of faith and on fire and believing for my miracle. And then the next day feeling like my baby's going to die and there's no hope. And how am I possibly going to go on living with my baby who won't be living with me? So I would say that was extremely challenging. And then outside of Jason's father's struggles, I mean, like I had mentioned, I did so much of my grieving during the pregnancy that I didn't really grieve again with Lucas until he started to go through puberty. And that's when it became extremely difficult again, because even a young child who's four or five and is in diapers or is nonverbal, um, he was extremely cute and likable. So you can even still find people to help you with this cute little boy. But when he started to go through puberty and he started to get very aggressive and the nonverbal language turned into screaming when he couldn't articulate what he wanted and that screaming happened all the time. And we're just trying to figure out any possible way to get him to convey what he needed. And I was so late to the medication game because I was just convinced that my son was not going to go on medication. And it took a global pandemic for me to call his doctor and say, either he's going on something or I'm going on something because one of us is going to lose our mind. And we tried medication for the first time ever when he was 16 years old. And all that chaos in his mind just settled down and he became calmer. And we started seeing more words because the chaos began to settle down in his head. And Lucas has a lot more than just autism. He has numerous diagnoses scoliosis, Chiari malformation, hydrocephalus, lots of medical needs that we have to constantly just be aware of, autism, ID, 
So he will require 24 seven care for the rest of his life. And he's now 18 years old. And and that's what we're facing at this point. Can we back up just a minute, Jess, to the time when you were carrying him? And, And we talked a few months ago with Abby Johnson, who is a huge advocate for the pro-life movement. I wonder when you were faced with the diagnosis of a child who has had a stroke in utero, was there a lot of pushback from the medical community to abort this baby? And if so, how did you in your faith stay strong enough to say, I know I'm not an expert. I know you're the person with all the letters behind your name, but I feel fully called to carry this baby to full term and give it life. Do you have any thoughts about that time? Oh, yeah. The doctor looked right at me and said, we recommend termination. Um, You're young and healthy. You won't have any problems getting pregnant again. Go home or let's terminate this pregnancy and you can go home and you can try again within a couple of months. Um, And that just wasn't an option. It was never an option for us. Um, My faith wouldn't allow that. I believe that every child is is made by its creator. And if it was God's will to take home this baby, then I would be at peace with that somehow, someday. <laughs> it might have been, there might have been a wrestling period, but I was not going to make that decision for this child. That was going to be in the Lord's hands. And now, 18 years later, it is absolutely remarkable what God has done with Lucas's story. And he's not done with Lucas's story. And the most amazing thing about God using Luke's life even is Luke is the most humble person in the world. He doesn't care if his name is known like throughout the entire world, like he just doesn't care. And God is using like the least of these to showcase his glory to people. It's really incredible. I love that, Jess. And I really applaud you for for making that decision as hard as it was. There's so many, one of the pro-abortion arguments is, you know, well, your child's disabled. You can't raise that. That's going to be too hard. The fact that you said yes to that, but now to see that great blessing that he is, not only to you, but for the world. And as your film, we'll talk about your film in a minute, but as that goes out to the world, people are being made aware of him. And I think that's just, it's beautiful. And I thank you that you made that choice as hard as it was, but I'm really grateful that you came right against the medical professionals and said, nope, I'm not doing that. And that's a witness, too, to your faith. So I'm just grateful for that. Well, tell us now a little bit about meeting Ryan, because he's your husband now, after you'd lost your first husband. Tell us about that. Yeah, in your intro, you said it took years. It took months (laughs) before I met him. (laughs) Yeah, it was was pretty fast. Um, Well, to wrap up the story with Jason, um, we ended, Jason's tumor was removed. We ended up getting pregnant again for a fourth child. Um, We didn't really plan on that child, but had we waited for our perfect timing, Joshua would have never happened. Um, So I'm pregnant and Jason had to go for quarterly MRI appointments. And he called when I was maybe five, five months pregnant and extremely annoyed from the ER and said, Jess, the tumor's back. I have to check myself into um, ER or check myself into the hospital immediately. So he checked himself in and it was another baseball size brain tumor. They removed it. He had to go through chemo and radiation um, and he ended up passing away August 24, 2010, one month before Joshua's first birthday. 
So then I was a young widow with four children, six and under. Um, I had had three years to kind of process everything. And I often say by the time he passed away, I was definitely at like the acceptance stage and just sort of saying, God, you know, now what? And it was interesting. My mother-in-law pulled me aside at Jason's celebration of life ceremony and said, Jess, I'm praying for your next husband. And I just looked at her like, what? You know, I, we had just buried her son, buried my husband. And she said, I know you can't do this on your own with four young children. Um, Lucas's needs were extremely intense. And she said, you're going to need a godly man to come alongside you. And three months later, I brought the kids out to go trick-or-treating on Halloween night. And I came home and I had kept a blog through Jason's three-year cancer journey just to update the masses. And I checked my blog that night after putting them to bed and a stranger from Pennsylvania had left a comment on my blog. And she said, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but there's a young widower in Oklahoma who lost his wife to brain cancer. He has three young children and he's not doing very well. And she died four days after Jason had died. And she said, I just feel like you could be a source of encouragement to him. So I went and I found his blog and just left a little comment like, hey, I'm praying for you, whatever. Had no intentions at that point. Woke up to an email from him. And that just led to us pouring out our hearts to each other. We were engaged a few months later and married within the year. Um, And he ended up moving to Michigan. We adopted each other's kids. And then um, we ran away to rural Tennessee in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) to pursue the simple life. And I'm saying that with quotes, Um, bought 30 acres of land on the Tennessee river and raised kids and chickens and had gardens and had an eighth and final child together and thought we were going to live out our days there until Lucas's needs just became so intense that we just realized we needed more resources and support. Yeah. That's, I I love that though. You moved to Tennessee, but yeah, I imagine how difficult that was when you all were trying to find that support that you needed. Well, tell us about the Lucas Project, because you and Ryan have started that nonprofit and you've done a powerful documentary. It's called Unseen, How We're Failing Parent Caregivers and Why It Matters. And I've seen the documentary and it is powerful. It's really, it, it made me cry several times just because we don't realize the needs that you guys have. We we realize the special needs children and adults have definite needs, but we never really think about the parents or the grandparents or whoever the caregivers are. So I I would really love for you to talk about that. We'll include a link to the documentary in the notes and for for all your information, but tell us about the Lucas Project and how that all started. That came about in 2017 when we were living in rural Tennessee um, and Ryan was having some um, health issues and ended up in ER twice uh, with heart attack symptoms that, well, they seem to be heart attack symptoms, but they turned out to be panic attack symptoms um, just from how isolated and exhausted we were in the middle of nowhere without any support or resources. And like I had mentioned before, Lucas's behaviors were just intensifying and nobody would help. We could not find anybody who would like give us a break. So when Lucas was born, I vowed to him that I would one day start a nonprofit in his honor. But I honestly thought that that nonprofit would help children um, and, you know, help raise money for their medical needs or their, you know, personal needs or whatever that would look like. And Luke or Ryan's health issues became the catalyst for starting the nonprofit. And I decided that it had to help 
the caregivers because the children were only as healthy as the caregivers. And if the caregivers were not doing well, the children were not going to be doing well. Um, So our mission statement was formed. We provide recognition and respite for parent caregivers. Um, And the respite part was really easy. We started operating a a respite center out of a local school district, and that was very successful. Um, People loved it. It was just a five-hour chunk of time that these caregivers could drop off their kids, um, the child with the disabilities, and also the siblings, and they could go do whatever they wanted uh, completely free of charge for five hours. But then the recognition part um, was a little bit trickier. Um, I was writing essays, you know, for the blog and I was considering a podcast, but I thought there has to be a way to invite the public into our struggles. Um, and our family kind of has this interesting story. We we landed on the Today Show a couple of times. And so we had some some different networks reach out and wonder if we wanted to do a reality show. And I was like, eh. <laughs> I don't think so. The moms don't usually turn out looking very good on those. (laughs) But then I started thinking maybe we could create a documentary um, and kind of invite society into our world because we are such an isolated group of people who don't go out very often because the world just isn't made for families like ours. Um, So in 2018, on a normal day, I just threw my grand idea out on Facebook. I just said, I have this big idea and if anybody knows of a filmmaker who would be willing to meet with me, send them my way. And a filmmaker in Nashville saw the post and we met up for lunch and the rest is history. Four years later, we created a documentary. Has all our talk here over the years about homeschooling piqued your interest in it? Are you just starting out? Are you looking for some mentorship, a group of like-minded parents to come alongside you for encouragement? If so, It sounds like Classical Conversations is just what you've been looking for. Classical Conversations can help you lead your child to a world of possibilities by equipping you with a proven curriculum and support from a local community of homeschool families. You are their first teacher. Now be their best teacher. Learn how to make homeschooling doable at classicalconversations.com slash mom to mom. That's classicalconversations.com slash mom. T-O-M-O-M. According to social analysts, because I was born in 1979 at the tail end of Gen X and just before the millennials hit the scene, I'm a zennial. Those quote-unquote experts have declared that I'm a member of a micro-generation of folks who grew up with an analog childhood and a digital young adulthood. In other words, I was the last line of no-tech or low-tech kids. Looking back, I can appreciate what a gift my screen-free childhood really was, and although I know in the present moment providing a no-tech childhood or adolescence for my kids is probably wishful thinking, I do want to preserve as much of that kind of innocence as possible for them. That's why I'm so grateful for the Gab Phone. With two teen drivers and another one just months away from getting behind the wheel, I appreciate the safety that a cell phone can provide. Then again, I also know that a smartphone nurtures a whole other batch of unsafe scenarios. With the Gab phone, however, I can have peace of mind knowing that my tweens and teens can call or text me whenever they need to, and that I can call or text them back. But that's it. 
Because the Gab phone looks and feels like a smartphone, but isn't connected to the internet in any way, I don't have to worry about cyberbullies, predators, or the shady back alleys of social media. In that way, my kids can have a childhood similar to my own, digital when necessary, but analog for everything else. To learn more or to snag a Gab phone or watch for your tweener teen, head to gabwireless.com and use promo code mom to mom at checkout. That's gabwireless.com, promo code M-O-M-T-O-M-O-M at checkout. Well, I want to ask you about your your other children. I um, have a dear friend. She writes fiction books for Penguin Random House, and she wrote a book called the Ostrich and Other Lost Things. And the book takes the perspective of a little girl whose brother is severely autistic and kind of the struggles that she faces, feeling kind of unseen and like she, like the priorities tend to always lie with the brother who needs so much care and help. And I wonder if you, your kids have um, voice to you some of those same frustrations and how do you help them to see what a blessing Lucas is and how can you um, help to nurture their lives? And we have heard those concerns voiced from a couple of kids um, more along the lines of Luke is your favorite child, which I think perception is so interesting, like the one who is so difficult. Um but because we do invest so much time in his care and his well-being because he can't do anything independently. But we also have seven children who have lost a parent. So we talk a lot about this is your story. It's up to you how you're going to proceed and navigate through the world with the story that the Lord has given you. Um, you can wallow in self-pity and victimhood, or you can do something great with your story. Um, and that seems to have really resonated with a lot of them. And I know Ryan and I try to model that same behavior. We've had a lot of stuff happen in our lives at very young ages. But um, if you can use it for God's glory and to bless other people, then it's, I, I don't even know that it's worth it, but it, there, there becomes this meaning behind it. And just even being, or being one of eight children, I mean, they're all one of eight. So there's, there's never a lot of one-on-one -on -one time to begin with. Um, we do a lot of things as a family. And that's always been my core belief, even. The dinner table is huge. We try to gather around the dinner table almost every single night to the best of our ability. And that's where a lot of those authentic conversations do occur. But again, we just say to them often, this is your story. Um, like we have this, this saying hanging on our fridge, your wound is probably not your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. And we believe that there are people in the world with way worse stories too. And you just do the best you can with the story that you have. Mm -hmm. And I imagine they're going to grow up to be so empathetic and kind and compassionate because that's really how those character qualities are nurtured in a person when they see, when they have a proper perspective about their own situation and are able to see, to walk in other people's shoes a little bit. Um, I, I do want to highly recommend that book, The Ostrich and Other Lost Things. If you're listening and you have a child who is autistic, I think it can provide so much healing and hope for your other children because in the story that the young girl 
does come to realize just what a gift her relationship with her brother really is. Um, I wonder, there are very few long-term care facilities, to my understanding, Jess, correct me if I'm wrong, um, for adults with special needs. Um, I have a friend who actually runs a home for adults with special needs, specifically women who have Down syndrome. And I know that they struggle at times to get respite care and you know, they're often put on waiting lists for different things. I know that you and Ryan are beginning to purchase properties to offer residential help to special needs families or the caretakers. Tell us about that. Tell us about Hope Farm and how it's progressing along. Yeah, you're correct. There's a massive uh, shortage throughout the country. And I don't really know what this looks like in the next 10 years as all of these children continue to age and their caregivers continue to age. Um, it's something that we're definitely going to have to address at a national level. Ryan and I moved to Michigan kind of with the understanding that there would be a facility. Um, and we had even kind of picked one out that Luke was going to live at when he was like 19 or 20. And we came here um, and found out just like so many other people who moved to different states, thinking that there's something that well, yeah, there's there's something, but in terms of where you are on that waiting list, you're like probably you know five hundred thousand on that waiting list because you and your husband are young and healthy and you're married, and so you're you're not going to get a placement anytime soon. And so I'm just kind of a fix it person <laughs> and thought, um, well, maybe we need to look for something. And just, I got in, in contact with a local realtor who started or who set up a search for me with some criteria. I kind of had this idea of a mini farm and this property popped up and I ran over there to check it out. And it was perfect. It had two houses on the property with this huge white barn. And we had an investor who had offered to front the money if we found it, if we found something that would be appropriate for five or six adults and I was sold immediately. And I got my husband over there to look at it the next day. And I thought, well, he's usually the dream killer. And he's going to tell me all the reasons why we can't do this. And he was sold too, which was like a miracle in and of itself. And the fact that it didn't sell immediately in this extremely hot market that we had going on in Michigan, nobody else really wanted to touch it because it was so unique with the two houses that couldn't be split along with the barn. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, one could be a caregiver's house, one could be a house for the individuals. And then the barn, I had this dream of converting into this respite center. Um, so we put an offer in on it and it was accepted. And that was in August. We actually closed on the property on Lucas's 18th birthday, um, August 12th. And um, that happened to be the seller's birthday as well. So that was like a little God wink for me. And we've just been busy fundraising for this property um, because it's going to take a lot of money. It's old. We did. We had demo day on Saturday where we demoed the entire thing. We had a group of about 20 volunteers over there just swinging sledgehammers. And we're going to continue to raise money. Our goal is to have the first floor completed by this summer. And that will be housing for three individuals, including Lucas and two other females. Um, we're, we're friends with their families as well. So it's just really fun to see how this is all coming together. And we're excited to see what happens. And we're hoping actually to teach other families how to do it as well in the future. 
Oh, that's wonderful. And you're, you're hoping to have more properties, right? We, that was the original goal. This is, this is intense. <laughs> this is really intense. So we're gonna, we're gonna shoot for probably six individuals in this home. And then we'll take a breather and see if we're, if we have it in, in us to maybe create more. Take it one day at a time. Exactly. So what are some practical ways that our listeners can help? I know there are a lot of folks probably in their community that need help. They're raising children or caring full-time for an adult with disability. So how can we help? Um, there are so many ways. What I often say is, you know, parent caregivers have to-do lists that just never end between picking up meds and doctor's appointments and therapy appointments and it just goes on and on. So it doesn't even necessarily have to do with like providing respite for the child. Um, I understand how that can be kind of intimidating if you're not familiar with the diagnosis or the family or, you know, the family's not familiar with you. But I would just say, you know, enter into that space with that family, bring over a meal, offer to do some lawn work, you know, get a church youth group together to weed the flower beds, um, detail the cars. Um, I've had people bring all of my kids out for uh, shoe shopping um, before a new school year started, because that's difficult to do with Lucas, or they brought over a bunch of school supplies, you know, just get really creative. I also had somebody come over and give all of my kids haircuts in the comfort of our home, because that can also just be difficult with a child with disabilities. So just get creative. And I think just evaluate what your skill set is and say, how could I use my skill set to help this family out? And then don't ask like open-ended either. <laughs> like, do you want a meal? Because we're so bad at accepting help. It has to be more like lasagna or tacos. I'm bringing it over Wednesday night. Which one? It, done <laughs> type of thing. And they will, they'll be so grateful. I mean, really just to be seen. I know that our, our friends who run this um, care facility for adults with Down syndrome, I know one of the things that is really helpful for them is you know, they want to want to be included in all the fun that is happening, like within our church circles and our age group when we have, you know, just just last month, we did a um, not so newlywed game together in a dinner night. But it's difficult for them to leave and come to us because of the fact that, you know, in their situation, they have to have certified respite care because this is they they run this facility um, for these women. And so we brought the party to them and, and they were perfectly fine having us all in their home. So just thinking about like ways that we can include families who have um, a child with disabilities into our everyday celebrations. And, and sometimes that might mean, you know, making the meal at our home, but bringing it over and enjoying it at their house. Mm. That's that's so true because we offered to host two Christmas parties at our house this year because Lucas is comfortable in his setting. And it was so much easier for me. Um, the families agreed and they came here and Lucas was able to sit in his favorite chair and play his iPad and we could all celebrate Christmas together. So, and I would encourage people to don't stop inviting us. I know we say no a lot, but we do like to know that you're still thinking about us. Well, you have a new book out, Jess. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it so we can be on the hunt when it comes out? 
Yeah, it's Lovin' with Grit and Grace. Um, it is releasing Valentine's Day, so February 14th. Um, and it's about relationships, marriage, um, love, <laughs> all that stuff. And in the context of caregiving and grief and eight children and moving and just it's just our stories that we've compiled together and the lessons that we've learned. And it's the most vulnerable thing I've ever written. We really go there in terms of some of the topics. And I just hope that other families can, can take something positive out of it and apply it to their own relationship and their own marriage and say, you know, if, if Ryan and Jess can carve out a weekly date night with their lives, what's our excuse? So, and not that we even always go out like on a date, but we've done like dates in our backyard and our travel trailer um, and just put one of the kids in charge for an hour or two. And we just like decompress for a while. So I'm really excited about this book. Well, thank you so much for your vulnerability and sharing it. I know it takes courage to share the grit and grace of everyday lives, but I'm sure it takes an especial amount of courage to share some of the harder struggles that the rest of us just maybe will never experience. So thank you so much for opening up your story in book form and in video form and here on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. I love something that you said in your interview on the Today Show, and it's a quote from Maya Angelou, and it says, if it is true that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, isn't it also true a society is only as healthy as its sickest citizen? And, you know, I think your story has really made us keenly aware of the real challenges of raising a child or caring for an adult with profound special needs. You have shared so honestly today about the heartache and the difficulties and the deep and continuing need for all of us to give caregivers real practical help. Your vision to have homes for disabled adults is really inspiring, but I know you can't do it alone. And I, I know that Finding community for special needs families can be difficult and lonely. You shared that today. They need the support of the church, their families, their friends to really help and be available when needed. And I think you gave us some great ideas of how to do that because we can all do something to help the caregivers that we know. So let me leave you with this scripture from 139 to all our listeners. And I really believe it includes all of us healthy or disabled. It's from Psalm 139. You all probably know this, but it says, you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. And I think that just points to every single human on the planet. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made regardless of our health or our disabilities or all of that. So I just thank you for all of our listeners for joining us today. And if you know a family that is caring for a child or an adult with special needs, please share this episode with them. I think Jess's words and her story is really going to bless them. And, and I believe that the more people who are aware of the needs of caregivers for respite, the more we can offer help. We're thankful that you joined us today, Jess, and we'll be praying for you and, and really pray for success with your documentary and your new books that are coming out. And thank you for being our guest today. Yeah, thank you.